Meg and I were down in Seattle for a weekend getaway. This is before the dollar was in the toilet. And uh, so we found a great rate on a hotel. And I think it's probably one of my favorite hotels. It's called the Edgewater Hotel. It's down on Pier 67 in Seattle. And it's just amazing views looking out over Puget Sound to Bainbridge Island. And then you look back, it's sort of angled so you can look back and uh, view the city from across the water. And the cool thing about it is that they let you open the windows, which a lot of hotels really are quite mm, scared of doing. So I opened the window. We, we paid for a city room. We got upgraded to an ocean view. It was fantastic. I opened the window, and I'm sort of looking out the window and just enjoying the view. And then from the room next to me, I see a person poke their head out of the window, and they kind of... Uh, cock their arm back, and then something sails from the window and into the ocean. And then they disappear, and the window closes. I thought, well, that's a little bit weird. What are they chucking out of their hotel room that they think is such an offense to them in some way? Like, is there not a garbage can in there that they can deal with this? Or what is it? So I I look carefully, and, and the object begins to float towards my room. And I begin to see that it's something that every hotel room in North America actually has in it, in the nightstand drawer. A Gideon's Bible. So I am not sure what my fellow guests' experience with the Bible was that caused them to be so upset that they would take it out of their drawer and throw it into Puget Sound. But it cannot be good if you're chucking Bibles out of your hotel window in anger. My other thought was a little bit more cheeky. I thought, you know what I should do? I should call housekeeping and just casually mention that I'm in room 402 and there's no Bible in the room next door to me. Could they please deliver another one? Just to make sure that it was tended to. But I thought against it. But it makes me think about the question, what's your personal experience with the Bible? I first encountered the Bible as an elementary-aged kid in Sunday school. And it was the only book that I knew or had ever seen that had fancy gilded gold pages and special thin paper, which I never saw anywhere else except in the Bible. And then where I grew up, people had cases for their Bibles. Then they would put things into them, like pens or highlighters or like snacks for their children. And people would talk about the Bible, and they would say things about different translations of the Bible, and they would talk about um, things like reading through the Bible in a year. And I didn't have any idea as a kid what any of these things meant, but people seemed to talk about it with great sincerity and conviction, so it seemed important. But as I grew up, And the more I wrestled with the Bible, I realized the Bible's not actually a very easy book to read because, well, a number of reasons. One, it's made up of two parts that are very different, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it contains 66 different books written by at least 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years, and it has multiple styles embedded 
in it. And sometimes, right in the middle of one of those books, the style switches. It could be narrative. It could be history. It could be poetry, prophecy. It could be a personal letter. It could be a biographical account. It could be a letter to a church. On top of that, it was originally penned in three completely different languages. And then we've translated it. In fact, it's been translated into more languages than any other book in human history. The Bible is so significant to human history that, in fact, people have given their lives to the work of making it available to people who don't have it. I think here about people like the Nicoles and their work in Africa and with Canael and some of our supported partners like Jung Hoon and Pearl, who every day get up and the whole purpose of their work and ministry is to make it available to people who don't have a translation project in effect. I think about people like John and Anita McCarthy, who are getting ready this summer to go with Wycliffe Bible translators, and they're going to head to Papua New Guinea and teach and support those workers who are out on the front lines. And I put their, uh, their blog website up there, and so if you haven't uh, made sure that you can keep in touch with them already, that's a great way to do it. But as teachers, they're convinced of the impact that the Bible has and so they're going to actually step right into that, and we want to step with them as a community. So the Bible is deeply important, but yet still confusing, because even beyond the composition of the Bible, sometimes the actual content of the Bible can be complex and hard to understand. There's some parts of the Bible that even after rigorous analysis and thousands of years of people thinking and writing and arguing, some verses are still debated as to their exact and precise meaning. And so, when you think about the Bible, there's this sense of tension built into that process that on the one hand, it's a book so complex that people have given their entire life to studying it. And yet, it's so simple that even a child can understand it. Friends, this is no ordinary book. And so sometimes we get stuck with the Bible. And if I were to ask you or you were to ask me a question about the Bible, something along the lines of, well, how well do you know the Bible? What would you say if somebody asked you, how well do you know the Bible? See, for a long time in Christian circles, my observation has been that people have equated spiritual maturity with how much you knew about the contents of the Bible. But the challenge is that we've probably all met someone who understands and knows a lot of the contents of the Bible, but their character may not necessarily reflect that. They may be under-transformed by the impact of the Bible. They may have read it through hundreds of times, but might be still judgmental or angry or just as filled with anxiety or fear. And so just a knowledge of the content of the Bible is not necessarily a measurement for maturity. And I think part of that comes from the fact that sometimes we approach the Bible with the wrong set of expectations or questions in our mind. 
what if God's desire for you when it comes to the Bible is not just that you knew more about the Bible, but that you actually understood more about what God is communicating to you in the Bible? Maybe the reason that the Bible is so intimidating for some people is that they approach it through the wrong lens and think that just knowledge of the Bible will help them. And it doesn't always equate to growing in understanding. Well, last month I picked up a copy of a, a short book by a pastor and author named Jarrett Stevens, who's in Chicago. And he attempted to take his congregation through the Bible. And the book was called Four Small Words. And I was quite struck with the simplicity of it. And so I reached out and uh, emailed him and uh, his people and asked if there'd be a willingness to share some of that material with us. And they were very generous and said that uh, that, that would be not a problem at all. And so I got a pre-release copy of the book and read it right away. And I found it to be a simple but yet profound way of understanding the Bible and all of its complexities. And what he's done is he's boiled the Bible and the themes of the Bible down into four words. Now you might say, well, Brad, that's impossible. You're going to be, at best, highly reductionistic. There's no way to reduce the approximately 774,000 words in the Bible down to four words. And it might be. And so you'll have to forgive me for that. But we do, I would argue, live in an era where we're learning increasingly how to say less with more. And we're trying to teach pastors this as well, but it has yet to catch on. But we live in an era where we have things like Twitter or texting or Instagram or things like, don't even get me started with emojis. If I find the person who introduced my daughter to emojis, I may just take your cell phone and throw it off of Pier 67 in Seattle. But what if someone said to you, could you sum up your story in four words. You might be able to if you thought about it for a while and you divided your life into parts or movements or segments where you said, well, in my early days, this was true. And you had a word to define and describe that. So that's what we're going to do as we move through this story of the Bible. What if you could understand and communicate God's big story in just four small words? And if you get those four small words you might be able to have a less intimidating conversation with people around you about the Bible. Maybe a friend or a neighbor or a coworker asks you, so what is the Bible all about anyways? And these might give you some handles to be able to engage in that conversation. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the four main movements or parts of the Bible. And there's going to be a single word that encapsulates that part uh, synthesizes that theme or that segment of the Bible. Four small words to help us get at the big idea or the big picture. So here are the four small words. The first word is the word of. The word of. And we're going to talk this morning about the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 because this is the story of, of beginnings. It's the story of identity. Then the next part of the Bible Next week, you'll have to come and watch and see if I can preach the entirety of the Old Testament in under 35 minutes. 
The next part of the story is the between part. This is the story of separation that goes from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of the Old Testament and the last chapter of Malachi. Then the third word of between, the third part is, is with. This is the Gospels, the story of a God who is present in Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 through Acts chapter 1. And then the fourth movement is the rest of the New Testament, and the word there is in to describe the story of a people inhabited by God himself through the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2 through Revelation chapter 22. So again, this isn't necessarily going to feel like content because we're not going to be able to cover all of the content. We're going to give ourselves some handles to be able to then connect some dots for you, hopefully, that you would grow in your understanding and maybe make sense of some of the things you already know and be able to place them within the movement of the story of the Bible that God is telling us. All right, so let's open your Bibles to the very beginning. That's a very good place to start. <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 1. Because the first word in the, our story comes from the very first book of the Bible. And it's found in Genesis chapter 1 in the story of creation. And so God is creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And then in Genesis chapter 1, 26, God says, Let us, meaning the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, make human beings in our image to be like us, to be of us. Now, the word of is a word of identity. It's a word of being, a word of belonging. The book title, for example, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, tell you that these are stories springing from the life of and emerging from the life of Tom Sawyer. A phrase like the United States of America is a statement of composition, a statement of belonging. It's an identity statement. Of can also be a statement of biology. I am the son of Greg and Colleen, which means that I have parts of me that come from them, their DNA, but there's also a statement of belonging to and with them. Of is a, a deeply relational word. And that's why it's a word that helps us to understand the beginning of the story. Because of is not just a relational or biological concept. It's also a theological concept. Because Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are there to help us understand and wrestle with the most hauntingly resonant questions that human beings ask. And that is, where do we come from? Why are we here? What is the story of purpose and meaning of our existence? And Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that we don't just come or from or belong to something. Rather, we are connected to and belong to someone. Your identity flows from and belongs to another story, a story bigger than just the story of your parents or biology. Your story has a source and a beginning. And the Bible puts it this way in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God 
created human beings in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. Male and female, he created them. You are created in the image of God. You didn't just get here, you were placed here. God's fingerprints are all over the story, not just of humanity in a general sense, but your story. You and I have been created in the image of God. This is where the story begins. This is where your story begins. Because there's two profound questions that are answered for us in the text in Genesis 1 and 2, the first parts of God's story. And the first question is, well, who is God? How do we know who God is and what God is like. And the question of relationship with God is laid out for us here because one of the things that we see right away in Genesis chapter 1 is that God exists in the context of loving relationship. Let us, the text says, create in our image. The word that we would use to describe this would be the Trinity, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I appreciated deeply the work that uh, Mike Ryder did with our youth at Fusion of articulating and describing this. And Mike has a blog uh, for our youth, Wired, on Blogspot. And it'd be something that if you're uh, particularly a parent of a young person, but I thought it was such a great explanation when I read it as well. I thought this would be great for anybody to read. And you might want to talk to Mike and he can make sure he points you in the right uh, direction on that. And one of the things that Mike highlighted is that the Trinity is far more relational than often we will give credit for. Stanley Grant's the theologian reminds us that when we're talking about our identity as humankind, we need to remember that we have been created from a community that pre-existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, we have been created for community. So God exists in the context of loving relationship. And then, out of that, God creates out of an overflowing sense of love. Genesis 1 and 2 is punctuated with the phrases like, and God saw that it was good, or God delighted in that which he had made. See, when God created the world, when God created you, the psalmist says that you were knit together in your mother's womb. God did that as an act of overflowing love. God looked at what he had created and declared and said, it is good. God's choice to create the world, to create humankind, to create you and I, was an act of overflowing love. It's an overflow of who God is in his character. John, uh, 1 John chapter 4 reminds us of this over and over and over again. The apostle is searching for words to describe who God is, and he says, God is, God is love. God is love. And this refrain comes to us over and over again. Now, some people then would look and say, well, then 
if there is something that is created or exists in the created world that is not love, did that come from God? What about things that are just so wrong and challenging in our world, birth defects and genetic conditions and all these things that exist in the created order. Are you telling me that God somehow delights in all of those things? Well, we're going to get to this next week and we're going to see that we live in a world that is punctuated by disrupted intentions, that not everything that exists is as God intended it to be. But God's creative intention, as expressed in its original form, is an intention of creating love and delight. Because next week we're going to explore the implications that enter the world of God creating us as humankind with choice. Because the implications of God's love is that he created us with an ability to say yes and to say no to a loving relationship with him and with each other. And when we choose to reject that, we put distance between us and God. But here's the challenge. There are people and systems of theology that want to start there and place the strongest note of emphasis there with how horrible we are and how sin-soaked this world is and how depraved humankind is. And all of that is true, but... It's not where the story begins. The story starts with the beautiful truth that you and I are created in the image of God. And that yes, God's image has been marred and scarred and wrecked and damaged by sin and the effects of living in a fallen and broken world. And that's not to diminish any of that. But it is to say this. Let's start where the biblical story starts in Genesis 1 and 2 with the story of God's image being indelibly and irrevocably stamped into humanity. Yes, the story takes a twist and a turn and hurt and evil enters the world and along the way does significant damage that many of us have experienced. But that does not diminish the story's beginning. The story starts with us being named and known and loved, which means we're already starting to move in the direction of answering the second most profound and basic question that the human heart needs to know. And that is not only who is God, but also who am I? Who are we as humans? And Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a beautiful and daring picture of identity. One of the things we're going to see as we move through this series is that, in a sense, these four small words not only tell the story that God has written large over the story of history in the Bible, but they also connect deeply with your story and mine. Because the answer to that question, who am I, could also be framed using those four small words. Let me give you an example. You and I were created as humanity for relationship with God and with others. That's the word of again. Because each of us is created with an identity that comes from God and is bigger than who we are right now. 
but each of us has experienced separation from God. So there's the between word again. When sin comes between us for one season or another, or as a result of our choice to distance ourselves and reject God. With, each of us has moments when we have felt closer to God than others, when we knew that God was with us, or when we desired that feeling of God being with us and close to us in relationship. And in, each of us has been created by God to live in the power and presence of God or for us, rather, to live in the power and presence of God in and through our everyday lives in the Holy Spirit. And so we're created for relationship with God and with each other. It's a marker of our identity. And the second thing we see in Genesis 1 and 2 in terms of our core identity is that God experiences and desires for us to experience a sense of equality and mutuality in these relationships. Let us create humankind in our image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So in our relationships and at the very beginning of the story, we have the reminder set that God has created us, both men and women, to live in and reflect his image. And there's an interesting word that comes up here in this text and in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18. And it's sometimes misunderstood. Genesis 2, verse 18 says this, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper who is just right for him. So again, speaking about relationships, God says it's not good if there's no relationship in terms of our connectivity. And so I will make a helper. And that word helper is the word easer. And we don't have time this morning to trace that word all through the Old Testament. But oftentimes when we think about helper, we think about uh, somebody doing something important and then if they need some assistance, then we'll get a helper for them to come alongside. And then sometimes this has bled into our view of relationships between men and women, that there's those who are helper, and we think of helper as being inferior. But easer, the word helper, is translated and used very often in the Old Testament about the work of God, God being our helper, God being one who strengthens, one who is a warrior to protect to defend, and it's not a word of inferiority in any way, shape, or form. It's a word used to describe a strong and robust partnership in a project that requires that of both parties. And so in Genesis chapter 1, we're reminded of this, that part of our created understanding is that we're created to experience equality in our relationships as co-image bearers of God, male and female, each uniquely and distinctly representing aspects of the heart of God, but created to experience equality together. And this plays out and has played out all through history in various different ways. I think about the way that people in other cultural settings have used or misused the Bible throughout history to inappropriately or marginally create categories to dismiss people of other races or ethnicity. 
and saying, well, they're not created in the image of God like we're created in the image of God. Or empires or races that saw themselves as more pure or more deserving of God's blessing or favor because they were created in God's image and other people were not. But when you get back to the start of the story, you see again that God's design for us was a mutual respect for one another and an equality that is embedded right into who we are. And that's one reason why here at Jericho Ridge, it's a place where men and women serve together in leadership and where we respect and cultivate the gifts and calling and identity of both our sons and our daughters. And we believe in our maleness and our femaleness that we're both created as image bearers of God and each has a unique and distinct role to play in that. And so we're created to experience mutuality and equality in our identity. So the roles that we play or the tasks that God gives to us also remind us that we're called for a purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 reminds us that we have been created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he has set out for us in advance to do. And so we're created to have a purpose in our lives, to partner with God in the work that he's doing in the world. Right away in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man, creates woman, and gives them tasks to do, gives them assignments that they're to be, uh, have a vocation and a sense of identity that carries them forward in that purpose. And God does not then just save us and then do all of the work in the world. He calls us and gives us an incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility. And we're going to talk more about that in week four when we talk about the work and partnership of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You may be thinking about now, okay, so that's some pieces of what it might look like to be created in the image of God, but what are some of the actual practical implications for your story and mine. Well, any story of identity, because it's so core to who we are and understanding who we are, is going to be challenged from multiple fronts. Each day, every one of us is bombarded with messages about our identity, about who we are supposed to be and who we are. And especially in our culture, it's very easy to get caught off guard or caught up in statements of false identity. We can become uh, unaware that we're shifting our identity subtly to what we do instead of who we are. We can begin to derive our identity from our performance and from the things that we do. And that can happen very easily, not only vocationally, but it can happen in religious and church contexts where people then begin to derive their identity from the role that they play within the community. And that can be unhealthy in some ways for people to begin to take on that identity. We can begin to develop our identity in exterior appearances and how we look, how much we weigh, whether or not we dress like the people around us. And our identity can become rooted in that instead of in who we are. We can take on identities rooted in our financial realities, how much we make or how much we owe. We live in an era that 
is filled with profound identity confusion and exchange. And here's the challenge for us. The challenge is that if we lose sense of who we are and whose we are of, we lose sense of who we are. If you lose your moorings for your identity, who you are of, your origin story, you will lose who you are because you won't be able to live with a clear sense of identity. And so in order to reclaim your identity, you actually have to go back to the beginning of the story. The truth is that you were created in the image of God. And friend, if you're listening today and you say, well, I don't know, Brad, that I have a deep sense of purpose in my life or meaning. I, I just feel like my moorings are shot and I'm just adrift. One of the things that can be profound for you is to capture, maybe for the very first time, a sense of identity rooted in a relationship with God. And you can begin that today because you were made in the image of of God, but maybe you've not begun to walk that relationship with God out just yet. And if that's you today, then you can begin that process by inviting God to be the center of your life and by praying and saying, God, I need to have an identity profoundly defined by you, by what you have done for me in Jesus Christ. My identity has been wrapped up in who I am and all of the things that I need, but today I choose to exchange that identity for a fresh set of purpose and meaning and hope in you. We would love to pray with you and help you get started on that journey today. Many of you have been on that journey for a long time walking with God, but today you might benefit from a reminder of that identity. Because one of the things that I find for me I lose track of is that just because your identity is in Christ, it doesn't mean that I always live that out in a full way. Because the truth is that who you are in Christ should define and shape every other relationship that you have in your world. Because who you are in God should define who you are as a friend. Who you are in Christ should define how you act as a spouse. Who you are in Christ should bleed out into the way in which you carry yourself as an employee or as a parent or as a single adult or a student because your primary identity is rooted and defines and colors every other aspect of your identity throughout the course of your life. But the challenge is that we forget this. And it becomes very easy then to believe and absorb identity stories that come from other places other than our relationship with God. But when you recapture that sense of identity as the source of your soul, the truth of where your story and your identity begin, this allows you to then be able to reject the lies of identity that come from other places because you're living from a deeper and a richer sense of who you are. You know that your identity doesn't come from what you have done, but from what Christ has done for you. And so you're reminded continuously of the fact that as a child of God, you are secure. 
You are accepted. You are significant. And so this morning, part of returning to the start of the story is to remind us of those very basic moorings for your identity. That we would stop defining ourselves by titles or roles or performance or things we do or don't do, but simply say, yet again, I affirm that I am a child of God. That I have been created in the image of God, and that is where I stand my ground. That is what it means to have an identity rooted in Christ. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of the story to our third week. But I'm going to ask Joel and Sharon this morning if they would come. And we're going to do two things. One is that they're going to uh, distribute for you uh, bookmarks that will help you remind yourself as you go through the course of this week about who you are in Christ, your core identity. And this is from a ministry that some of you might be familiar with called Freedom in Christ. And it just lists scripture after scripture after scripture that reminds you of who you are in Christ. And so uh, there's a bookmark for everyone, and I want you to take this and either put it in your Bible or put it somewhere where you're going to see it, put it up beside your computer monitor, or put it uh, somewhere in your car or up on your mirror so you'll see it when you get ready in the morning. Uh, And just take this as a reminder and look at those scriptures again and again. And as we move into a week of prayer together as as a community, These are some of the things that you will want to take time speaking out in prayer and saying, God, I thank you that my identity is rooted and secure in you. I thank you that I am loved as your child. Even though I mess up, even though I'm not faithful to your promises and to living out the things that you're calling me to, I thank you that I'm still your child. And so this becomes an anchor point for you to return to. So put it somewhere where you're going to see it and be reminded of your core identity. I'm making Joel and Sharon do double duty this morning because once they're finished uh, handing out the bookmarks, and I'm going to ask them to come again and ask the worship team to come and we'll prepare to respond in song uh, together this morning. We'll prepare to receive our offering. And the songs that we're going to sing this morning, the two of them speak to our identity. They speak to who we are in Christ. And so a prayer team will be available at the side for you. And maybe as you read through this bookmark, something twigs for you. And you say, you know what? This is an area I need to grow in, in my identity. And we just invite you to come to the side. And we'd love to pray for you in that and say, you know, do you have something that you're walking through in your life that we can support you in? Maybe a hard time, loss of a job, challenging situation, a meeting that you have coming up this week that we'd love to walk with you and support you in in prayer. And so we'd invite you to come to the prayer teams at the side at any time. So the worship team is coming. Joel and Sharon are going to come and we'll prepare to receive our offering uh, together this morning as we learn together to grow in and live out a deeper and richer sense of God's story in our lives. Because, friend, you have been created in the image of God. If we don't start there, the rest of the story doesn't make any sense. You've been created 
by a God who loves you and who understands and wants you to live out your purpose as an image bearer in his world. And so let me pray for you as we continue in our time together this morning. God, we thank you that you are gracious and good and kind. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as a God who created us in your image. You've created us for relationship with you. You've created us for relationship with each other. You've created us to understand and appreciate the the purposes that you are calling us to live out and work out in your world. And so with a deep sense of humility, we want to embrace that, God. But we also just confess to you that we, no matter how hard we try, we cannot do that in our own strength. And so, God, as we sing these songs of response to you that declare not only who you are, but invite us and remind us of who we are, we pray that you would stir up in our hearts a deeper sense to reclaim those pieces of our identity that have become fragmented or lost. And so, Jesus, we do that in the help and strength that you provide. In the name of Jesus, we ask and pray. Amen.